0: Inclusion, social justice, and compassionate leadership that's everlasting in the workplace. And now, here's Dennis Duran.
1: I'm very pleased to welcome to the Soft to Steel podcast the CEO and co-owner of the PD Group of Companies, Jeff Granberg. PD Group is comprised of eight progressive and diverse companies serving clients across Canada from six locations in Western Canada with its headquarters in Edmonton, Alberta. Jeff has in total over 30 years experience in the construction industry. He first joined Parc De Rocher in 1976. However, in 1979, he went on to post-secondary education in an unrelated field. Over the next 10 years, he went back and forth between the construction industry, social services, and was even a partner in a travel agency. He returned to the construction industry on a full-time basis in 1989 and rejoined Parc De Rocher in 1997 as a fireproofing division manager and vice president of construction. He worked his way up through the rank and file as a card-carrying union tradesperson. His journey with PD includes filling a range of positions within the firm, including project manager, senior estimator, division manager, operations manager, vice president, president, and currently CEO and co-owner. PD Group of Companies won a Best Managed Companies Award in 2016 and became a gold standard winner in 2019, and Jeff was recognized as the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2017 in the Prairies in Real Estate and Construction Division in Canada. Recently, Jeff joined me for a special episode recorded in front of a live audience at the IUPAT Finishing Industries Forum. It was Jeff's contribution to the conversation with five other construction industry leaders, including the general president of the IUPAT, that put Jeff at the top of the list of invitees for my podcast. Jeff, welcome to the Softest Steel podcast.
2: Well, thanks, Dennis. That was a pretty good intro, i got to admit.
1: Well, you wrote most of it, so (laughs) 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 it better be good. I fixed a couple of your typos and a little bit of your grammatical errors, but other than that, it's interesting. And as I said, as I was writing that, you know, I hadn't focused on it when I read your information on LinkedIn months ago, and that's why I was careful as I put the accent on a total of over 30 years. So, right off the bat, in terms of listener interest and my interest, tell me about leaving the construction industry, going on getting a degree. I, I imagine it's something to do with social work and also the travel agency. Tell us a little bit about your journey in those parts of your life.
2: Well, I grew up in uh, Northern Saskatchewan, and as I grew up in area, everything since Saskatchewan is flatland. And when at a young age, as I start working. You know, in the construction industry at 15 years old, I lied about my age and and worked in the summers at helping construct a new plant. And with that, I continued to work in weekend cleanups in the summers in the mill. And I quickly realized I did not want to work in a sawmill. I wasn't a farmer and I didn't want to earn my living cutting down trees. So I ventured off into Alberta. A friend of mine who was a few years older than me said, hey, you should come work for us in Calgary. And hence I went to Calgary. I started working with Park George at that point in time, no idea what I wanted to do. I was a 17 year old kid. And I started painting and I still remember my first week in the job back in those days, we didn't have the same standard of safety. So I was 30 feet in the air. And I had to walk a 10-inch I-beam 20 feet long and do a touch-up painting. Well, that took me 20 minutes because mm-hmm. I take a step out and I just looked down <laughs> couldn't do it. Finally, I sat in my bum and I kind of pushed myself to the other end. And so that was my start in the coating industry. Is, you know, I spent three years in the construction end of things. And I was altering between the painting and the fireproofing side and went, ah, I'm not sure I want to do this for a living. So I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I enrolled and I got accepted in criminology.
3: With
2: the end point being eventually getting to be a criminal lawyer, I thought that'd be a pretty good occupation. But to put myself through school, I continued to work construction. So by the time I was done, criminology is that I had worked me out up to being a general foreman. From there, I went into a probation officer for a while. I worked at that as a, at my practicum, and I I specialized in working with street kids and went back to construction with Park Teroche, got called in, and I ended up specialized working with street kids, uh, Inuit and Dené children, and kind of the worst of the worst. I worked with kids that, and unfortunately, is that, uh, were in there for uh, serious offenses, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that part. When I looked at my first paycheck, we got paid once a month, I realized, holy man, it's like I'm making more in two weeks work of construction than I am in a month, and I got a call from the founder, Merle DeRoche, that had a major project up in Fort McMurray and they said, well, would you come run the project for us? They said, well, geez, you know, I'm working in a different field now. And he said, what would it take? And so I told him, well, if I'm gonna quit this job, you know, you're gonna have to pay me to come home every second weekend. And the weekend I'm up there, I wanna work overtime. i want to make some money. So I thought that was a good chance for me to pay off my student loan. And so that's what I did. And I alternated back and forth. I did that for a bit. I got a call back from a place I was working there. were opening up a facility in the northern part of Canada, a place called Yellowknife. And it was specializing, working with just Diné and Inuit children in their environment versus the environment in Calgary. Uh, some of the kids we'd worked with is that, you know, they lived off the land, the Dene, So, you know, I thought it was an interesting to go up to the, the north. Unfortunately for me, as I took the job as a supervisor up there, but I didn't have the authority to hire the individuals. So I was part of that hiring process, but they ended up hiring 16 people that worked underneath me that had their degrees in social work or psychology or sociology. But they were all born and raised and educated in the city. Mm-hmm. And for them to understand the differences between, you know, the cultural difference between the Inuit and the Dene, uh, was very difficult. Me growing up in northern Saskatchewan, I grew up with those cultural differences, and mm-hmm. I played sports with them, I went to school with them. But it, you know, for me, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about human behavior. So later in life, when I went back to the construction type of thing, I think I just had a better, a broader perspective on on human behavior and recognizing today, they call it emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. Uh, To me, I call it street smarts of, Mm -hmm. you know, learning how to deal with different types of people, different viewpoints, different educational backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds. And that certainly to me was probably the biggest influence on my success of, of hiring the right people because I'm a real advocate of recognizing what your weaknesses are and hiring to it. And I think a lot of times managers struggle with that. They want to prove to their superiors that they know it all. Well, you don't. You can't. It's impossible. Everybody brings a different skill set. So to me, if you can recognize what your skill set is and then hiring people that have skill sets, you don't. That's a hard thing to do for a lot of people because it means, I mean, that person might know more than me on, on that topic. Well, the mm-hmm. answer to that is yes. And that's the whole intent of,
3: mm-hmm. but
2: that is one of the hardest things I think people have getting their head around is, is hiring someone smarter than the different capacities. And I think once you get to that point, that's when I think you start making the changes. You know, I look at my own personal experience and you know, growth we had in the organization. What I, what I didn't know when I came back to Park Troche, like a lot of companies that go through the, the the peaks and valleys, and I didn't realize how deep the valley was before I came there. I, I take look back at that is when I realized once I signed is that the company was very close to closing their doors, and then all of a sudden my t- challenge was well, how do we rebuild this? And I. Rebuilt it was people that had worked with me for a lot of years way back when when I first started with Park Troche, and back in those days I was playing a lot of ball, so I hired ball players uh, as tradespeople and weekends as our gig was we went around playing ball tournaments all around you know, mm-hmm. southern Alberta and mm-hmm. southern Saskatchewan, so that's kind of how I start rebuilding is bringing my old crew back and then just kind of going from there so. I Back and forth in those different areas, I learned lots. I learned lots as I was working in the, the travel industry uh, with my father. My father had decided he was going to retire, and he became friends with a, an individual that had uh, a travel franchise that, that predominantly did corporate travel. So that was a great experience for me because, you know, I really hadn't had the exposure to reading financial statements. Uh, I had to learn that by, you know, trial and error. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also doing presentations. My job was living, we were living in Calgary at the time. That's where we had our travel agency. And I had to get all dressed up in a a suit and a tie back in those days. You weren't allowed to just use a pocket square and no tie. Mm -hmm. Go downtown corporate Calgary, knock on the doors of oil companies and convince them to use us as their travel agent. Well, it was a good thing I had a jacket on because I was so nervous that I had sweat stains probably <laughs> halfway down <laughs> to my belt. But, but it taught me how to do a presentation. It taught me how to be clear and concise. It taught me to to learn rejection because, you know, in sales, I remember, I don't remember exact stats, but it's something like, is it, you know, if you make 10 cold calls, you'll get, you know, you'll get one appointment. Mm -hmm. You take Mm -hmm. 10 appointments, you get one sale. Well, that's a lot of phone calls. That's a lot of knocking Mm -hmm. on doors. And I remember going through back in the days, remember the yellow pages It went from A to Z and phoned every single business in there twice. And that's pretty humbling is how many times that, you know, the phone gets hung up on you, Mm -hmm. but it was a hard lesson, hard thing on sales. But again, that served me well. So when I take a look at the experience I had as, as a kid growing up in the uh, in northern Saskatchewan, a small community, and that rural living, working in uh, sawmills, uh, going back to uh, to school, the lessons I learned working in, in, the, in the coatings and fireproofing industry, combining that with you know the, my experience in working in a, in a corporate travel agency, I call it my quilt of success. I mm-hmm. learned something from every part of those. And you know, it, I think that's one nice thing is that uh, you're you might get more aches and pains as you get older, but I think if you reflect back. You start realizing the things you learn because at the mm-hmm. time, I don't think you realize the lessons you're learning, and I don't think you really put that together till much later. Mm-hmm. But when you do, uh, it's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense now. And that's why is it you know you look at some of the taglines you heard were growing up. It's uh, whatever job you take is you know, put put your best foot forward. I mean, mm-hmm. try not work the person to your left and the person to your right. And if you do that, opportunities present. If you do that, there's going to be lessons learned. And there's always going to be people that are more efficient um, than you are,
3: mm-hmm.
1: but
2: you learn from them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, to me, it, it really has been a quilt, uh, a quilt of success for me, Dennis.
1: Well, I- Yeah, this explains a lot about uh, about the impression that that you've made on me and our limited number of contacts over the last several years. Um, You know, to hear how you talk about your experience, Um, you're you're a person who is a perfect example without without focused on on uh, uh, titling. A set of skills, soft skills versus hard skills, uh, you've been developing both of those uh, and uh, over the course of your career uh, and probably the one which is one of the reasons why you're as successful as you are is that you have developed the skills that are the skills that are necessary for you to be able to build relationships with people. Over time, Um, you know, starting with the people that work for you as you built your crews uh, in the construction field or as you built your customer list at the travel agency, uh, practicing the skills that are necessary to to, uh, let people know that you're somebody that they want to do business with. Either as an employee or as a customer, and, uh, and that boils down to something which you're which you're very skilled at, and that is communication. Um, so it's uh, hearing that fuller story was was a very good use of time in our interview, um, because I think you're uh, again a great example of you know we we can be at a destination at a certain point in time, and and you now are are sitting in the position of CEO and co-owner of a highly successful large uh, contracting uh, and services business in Canada. Uh, well known by a lot of people in the construction industry and as well as the petrochemical industry and other places um, and that doesn't just happen uh, because you uh, your folks win bids and do a good job or uh, the fact that you put forth as uh, a strong uh, ingredient in your messaging and I can only rely on what I see on the internet and on your on your website you talk very uh, it's, it's very clear that there are two things which are hugely important to you uh, as 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 a, as a as a value, and that is the importance of, of safety and quality, uh, and, and that and your website speaks volumes to that. Um, but now, as I understand your your story, uh, I see where some of the origins uh, that lead us to those two critical considerations in uh, in selecting and continuing to work with particular organizations, and that is the the strong safety culture and the strong quality culture you have in your companies. Am I am I reading that correctly? I know absolutely.
2: Those two things are. Are front and center of our, our success. And I, I would add on there too, is that I take a look at uh, our loyalty components, uh, loyalty component to our people and our expectation of them being loyal back to us. And I take a look at some of the people who work for us. And for me, I pride myself that, I mean, a couple of them are now retiring, but you know, I've had 10 people follow me through three different companies. Mm-hmm. And four of those guys are back in the days when we were playing ball together what I enjoyed about that what I learned from them is that we could cut to the chase. We didn't have to be, maybe it's politically correct behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, when others are around, we certainly were because I mean, you don't want to uh, set a stage where you can talk to people somewhat disrespectful. And again, don't take that out of context, but when you're like brothers or good friends, sometimes mm-hmm. you skip some of those, but you don't want to use that as an example of how you deal with people. But I, it's, it's that loyalty component. I've had people leave and come back. I mean, I think in life, it's sometimes the grass seems greener on the other side. And we've kept that open-door policy. Leave on good terms. You never know when you need your next job. Mm-hmm. And we've had lots of people that, you know, have left and came back, some of them three times. Mm-hmm. And they've become some of our best employees. And I think that the fact they know they can leave and explore their options – we had a situation with a young guy two years ago. You know, he was approached by a, a, a competitor about saying, hey, how would you like to be, you know, a general manager? And he was at that time, he was 29 years old. And he said, geez, I don't know what to do. And I said, my advice to you is go. Mm-hmm. I said, because if you don't, you're always going to question or wonder, did I miss an opportunity? And I said, but the door is always open. And my wife, through the years, got to know him and he and. and and he said, I don't want to mention the guy's name, but he said, uh, my wife said, said to him, said, well, you'll be back in nine months. And he laughed. Well, he came back in 10 months. Mm-hmm. And so her joke was, okay, so I missed by a month. Mm-hmm. But he is now one of my guys in our organization and is leaps and bounds ahead of some others. He went and got that bit of experience and he came back and, you know, he recognized you can do so much more with a team of people. And I think one of the things that's, really become a lot of fun with me in the last three years is that I've kind of got re-engaged with working with our estimating and project management side and going back down to some of the basics because sometimes when you're going a different direction being led by a different manager it might not have been the same direction that I thought we should go but there's that fine line where you don't want to micromanage or step on someone's toe so you have to allow that Individual to try and carve their own path was in, but unfortunately, it was going in a direction that wasn't the direction we wanted. We'd lost some of our contacts. Uh, I think we got a little complacent and maybe even a little bit arrogant. So mm-hmm. we regrouped, we made some changes, and I gathered all these guys in, in the room and I said, Look, you guys are between the age of 30 and 38 years old. Wow. Some of you guys have been here for six years, some of you have been here for 12 years. You're the knowledge, you're the future. I need you guys to lead me now is what do you need to be successful?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I'm taking the handcuffs off and that's going to be the first six months. So you guys feel comfortable with that. And then we're going to work on with, <laughs> with autonomy comes accountability. And then the next step, we're going to to work on business one one And, you know, I, we've seen that, uh, it, it took a while for a change, but the interesting thing is the last nine months, Man, I think we we've built a team that is probably the best team our organization's ever had. And the cool thing, our average age in our office in Edmonton, we approximately seventy people. Our average age is around thirty eight years old. Wow, which is very young. Yeah, and but yeah. young with lots of experience. Mm-hmm. And I take a look at the the mix of people we have. So I'm having fun again. I'm having fun with looking at how we do things differently, but yet how we do things the same. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times working with that generation, they're looking for new ways of doing things. That's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Our generation, we're told if it's not broke, don't fix it. Mm -hmm. This generation, if it's not broke, break it, let's rebuild it, and come up Mm -hmm. with a new way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And I think our generation sometimes struggles with that. Uh, Well, we've always done it this way. Well, that's Mm -hmm. one of my pet peeves. If we're still doing it the same way today as we were 10 years ago, Mm-hmm. then we're missing the boat. And yeah. I think that's one of the keys for organizations that adjust. I and mean, we've been around since 1956. We've had to make a lot of adjustments to you know to survive those years. We don't do things the same way today as we did even five years ago. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, this is this is educational. Um, people will listen to this and learn from what you're saying. So you, you know that, uh, you know, in the, my vantage point, I'm the soft skills guy. And, uh, you know, so I talk about soft skills as not being skills. They're really the qualities of people that help them to build yeah. and maintain relationships. You've heard me a number of times. And uh, thank you for your patience in sitting through my presentations numerous occasions. I appreciate <laughs> that. Because um, I always notice when people get up and walk out, you're, you're, you're tall enough that I would have noticed you leaving the room. Um, but, uh, you know, I think as I'm listening to you and, and listening to how you've been interacting with uh, with what is, a, you know, a, a young... A, a, in terms of average age, a young middle management group, um, and, uh, uh, which I think is, is is nothing but good news uh, for the future of, of uh, Parc De Roche and its and its and its companies. Um, wh- and as you've been interacting, the way you describe getting together with them and saying, you know, some of the things that you say to them, um, you're you're what you're what you're doing is is giving them, uh, in your words, the vision for the future. Uh, you know, th- this is, this is where we are now. This is where we need to go. Uh, and, and you guys are the ones that have to figure out each and every step that's going to get us there. Is that a fair way of saying it? Yeah, that's
2: a very fair way of saying things. In fact, one of the things I had to teach them when we was, uh, I started getting back into bid reviews would have been two years ago and I had to kind of brush off my skills, but that was something I always enjoyed was the, the estimating side, mm-hmm. because it's not just about the estimating, it's about the strategy. Mm-hmm. and we were starting to do boilerplate estimating and mm-hmm. so where's your thought process what's your strategy so it t- honestly it took well over a year from saying guys look if you're coming in here and want me to go through all your spreadsheets and do the ask what do i need you for mm-hmm. what i want to do is come in and the first thing you got to tell me is that do we want the job or not want the job if we don't want the job tell me why if we want the job Tell me why and tell me what's your strategy and what's our price point going to be. But what's our sell point going to be? How are we going to communicate to the client? Because, you know, a lot of the times we got the job, we weren't the lowest bid. I don't want to be the lowest bid in every job.
3: But mm-hmm.
2: I do want is I want to build a rapport with my client and knowing, okay, you know, park you might be a little more expensive, but we know they're going to warranty stand behind their product. They're going to work safe. Mm-hmm. And we, we can count on them. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's important. And so this is where we're really starting to move. And again, and I, I have to repeat this every once. In a while. Well, do you want to go through my, my spreadsheet? No, I don't actually. Mm-hmm. I want to go through what is our strategy. Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I tell people, I don't know if you've ever played the game Catan, but it's a game, it's a game from Germany that a lot of university kids play. And it's a very strategic game. So I said, you know, businesses like Catan, Monopoly, and Risk. And you've got to know the rules and you've got to know how to play within that and outsync your component. There's nothing more enjoying than being your friends and your family in a game,
3: mm-hmm.
2: as long as you know you're playing within the rules.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: your competitors don't need to be your enemies. In fact, you want to get along with your competitors because everybody needs good competitors. We need to help make our competitors better. Because I mean, then the price point is going to be less. Good competition, that price point is five to seven percent spread. Mm-hmm. Bad competitors, it's 30 40 percent. They're going to yeah. get a job from you. They might right. not survive in two years. Yeah. But again, so it's coming down as what is our strategy? What is our strategy to walk away from a bid?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Very, you know, because there's some clients like, or, you know, it's our strategy saying, here's our price, but because it's, Customer X, we're going to add 20%. So we stay in there and maybe we feed the industry. This is where the prices should be. Yeah. So yeah. it's that strategy. It's when you get out of a, a certain segment of your market. Because,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, you know, people have such huge egos that sometimes they get their ego involved about winning the job. I'm going to make sure company X doesn't get that job. Well, that mm-hmm. shouldn't be how you do it. You see, what's your strategy do we want this job? What's our price point? Then you can say adjustment. You know what? I think that company has got their boots filled. We can add an extra 2%. Or mm-hmm. if we want this job because it's the start of the year, let's drop by 2 3%. Yeah. But when you start looking at dropping 10, 15, 20%, you got to ask yourself is my ego getting involved because I don't want company X to get that job?
1: Right. Right. You know, when I hear you use uh, repeatedly the word strategy, what, what I hear is I, I, I articulate it a little bit by saying what you're saying to them is that you need to know your customer, you need to know your competition, you need to know the marketplace. Um, 100%. You know, so that's, and, and, and so th- there's no substitute for, uh, for knowing things, knowing the things that you can know. Um, and then when you talk about potentially the, the, uh, the creeping in of uh, of, uh, of a higher level of self-esteem or, uh, or ego, um, that's, that's simply that, that gets into the part of the brain. That's because uh, you've mentioned, already mentioned the word emotional intelligence that gets into that part of the brain where we think about, you know, the fact that uh, as people receive information as a, as they gather information, as they have conversations, as they interact with others, um, all that is working through their brain, and it doesn't all jump to the to the analytical, uh, you know, uh, uh, objective part of the of the brain processing. Uh, it goes to the part of the brain that deals with emotions, with feelings. And if I'm feeling like I'm the I'm the baddest ass on the planet, um, that's gonna that's gonna filter how I deal with what the reality may be, uh, as opposed to what I think it is or what or what it, what it looks like. Like to me through my lens, um, right. and so the, the way you talk to your to your uh, to your managers uh, is you know basically the same thing. Y- your choice of words is, is ideal, uh, and what you're focusing on again, I'm just listening from the outside. What you're focusing on in um, in a in a, uh, in a pretty direct way uh, is is around uh, we we have a process to to, to build an estimate, uh, and if you don't know a lot about estimating, you, you can go and take the LMCI two day estimating course and get the basics from Dennis, you know, and, uh, you know, so that's where you get the basics. Um, we need to have a process. It needs to be consistent. It needs to be understood mm-hmm. by everybody and everybody needs to use it so that we are looking at it and saying on, on, a, on a case by case basis, we have a, a way of doing this that is producing results that we can rely on for the purpose of making final decisions and deciding, do we submit the bid or do we not? Do we add to the price or do we subtract all exactly. those kinds of things? And that's all, that's all the hard skills stuff that goes into that, that foundational uh, function within a contracting company, and I view estimating as being in- incredibly important to the success of any contractor, and I'm sure you agree with that. But, uh, it, but, that, but then you go further. Because what you're, when you talk about communication, when you talk about uh, strategy, all those kinds of things, now you're you're challenging them, and maybe not in a frontal assault way, but you're challenging them that they need to understand the people that we do business with, the people that we want to serve, the people that we compete with, and we need to understand ourselves uh, as we go about interacting internally to come up with our strategy, uh, to come up with the assumptions that we're, we're going to put in the proposal, et cetera, et cetera. And that means that we need to get, you know, to, to, to work on the soft skill side to make sure that we're not resisting Jeff just because he's been around a lot longer and I want to prove to the boss that I can do it better. Because that's, yeah. not, the way, that's not the way to win the day for the, the end result that we need to achieve. And that is to be a successful business, uh, build a backlog, uh, build profitable work, and succeed, which is what your company is doing.
2: No, you're, you summed that up well. I mean, I also look at one of the taglines I use is going in the war room, and I, I use that more on project preparation as to when we're going to go in and, and execute. I'll give you an example: is that we were doing bridges the last few years, and one of the things I saw is that we weren't, we didn't have the same guys estimating the bridge and trying to execute the the work our, our part of it. So we really didn't find our pattern; we didn't have a way of doing it. It was changing all the time, and I said, "Guys, that's not the way we're going to do. We got to build the teams. We have the same people estimating, the same people project managing, and is it the same with the crew? So we had put that in place. We decided that the thing is we are at the mercy of general contractors on these uh, infrastructure projects, and some of them were, you know, so concerned about dealing with the ministry that if we brought something forward that would, should have been a change order, they didn't want to take it forward because I mean they didn't want to upset their client." Mm-hmm. So we decided, to, and also that their, their cash flow is depending on getting paid. So we're sitting behind the scenes. So I said, no, we're going to become our own general and we're going to hire the mechanical and electricals and roadways and all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So we took on a big project up in, uh, in Northern BC and it was a $30 million project. And I said, before we start this project, I said, before we have a kickoff meeting, I want you guys to simulate a kickoff meeting. I'm gonna be the client, you're gonna come in and you're gonna tell me how we're doing this bridge. And because we're doing the coatings, we're doing the blasting, we're doing the scaffolding, we're doing the shrink wrap and the road control and the mechanical, like, I, want, I want us to come in as one. So you come in and it took us seven meetings before we got to the point that when we had a kickoff meeting we now all of a sudden had all our subs in line to what we're doing. We had refined the schedule, refined the laydown, refined the crew size, refined our our dates. And this was a 14-month project. Mm -hmm. And we should be done end of May, meaning we'll be done four months early. Why? Because we went in the war room and we looked at all possible scenarios. But we had all players, including our, our subcontractors in there, and, well, how do we make this better? And, and the cool thing about that, you know, our mechanical guy said, well, if you guys are doing it this way, what if I start at this end of the bridge rather than everybody going to work and trying to find their own place? Mm-hmm. So I use that as an example. So I call it going in the war room and, and making sure everybody has an equal voice because yeah. I don't want someone going there and dictating how we're going to do it. i say, okay, how do you want to do it? And I say, I don't run as a democracy. You have to have someone in that room that say, okay, I've heard everything. You know, maybe we need to come back and do this again, but at the end, let's try and get a collective decision. If not, then someone says, okay, this is way we're gonna do it. So mm-hmm. it's that communication piece again, we will we'll always come back down to that. Yeah. So sometimes, as you know, you need the soft skills to sell the hard skills.
1: Yes, yeah, well said. I, oh, that's, oh, I like that. Can I, can I use that in future talks? A- absolutely. Do I have to attribute it to you or can I just make it like it was my own idea? Oh, I'd make it your own. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's a that's a that's a that's that's yeah, that's it. I mean, that's kind of like uh, that that's that's straightforward. You're, you're right. You need the soft skills to sell the hard. The soft skills to sell the hard, sell the hard skills. Because if you just go in like a bull in a china closet because you think that's the best way to get this project moving and you don't have any sense of who the people are you're dealing with from a personality standpoint, from whatever exposure you have had for them, you can, you can knock yourself out of the game on day one.
2: Oh, 100%. And, you know, I think the ultimate compliment, and again, this is parking your ego, is you know, when I first came in three years ago and trying to make some changes to how we saw, saw the world or through the lens that the other guy had. Uh, you know, I tell them these things, and they thought they were just taglines, and it was so frustrating initially. And I, I was getting frustrated. How are we making these mistakes? And we weren't doing this ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was my son Ryan that finally said, and he never calls me dad; it's always Jeff, mm-hmm. uh, is from a work standpoint. And finally, I says, "Dad, you keep going off. How pissed off you are, but we're doing this and making these mistakes." He said, "But who mentored us? Like, who's going to mentor us to do it right?" And I went, damn it, you're right. Yeah. So I had to change my thinking again and say, yeah. okay, me getting frustrated where we are is not changing, it's doing that root cause analysis and say, okay, so what's the solution? Well, the solution is to mentor and help. So, yeah. And once I embraced that, I was getting more satisfaction again rather than just being pissed off that we're making these mistakes that we had figured out 10 years ago. And when, when it was – we had a conference here uh, four weeks ago in Canmore where I brought in 20 of our guys, and they all had to do uh, business – every division had to do a business plan, and then Brian reviewed it with our accountants. And it was, it was quite in-depth, but by the t- time they came to this conference, I said, I want a 15-minute elevator pitch of what you're doing. Because if you can't stand there and no more than five slides tell me what your business plan is for the year, then you don't know it. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen in these business plans is all these things that I said 18 months ago I felt was going on deaf ears, all of a sudden it was their ideas. And I'm going, so there's two parts of me. One part of me going, what do you think I've been telling you? But then the compliment side is, okay, they get it. Now it's theirs. Now they own it. That's ultimately what you want you want them to own it become their idea because now if it doesn't work well, it was your idea mm-hmm. no longer mine As again i think sometimes managers get caught up but that was my idea well don't do that because you've just taken away their ownership you know mm-hmm. so again so that's that's that putting the ego in check
1: so uh i'm i'm extending our time a little bit but i hope you don't mind uh yep. but, uh so uh, you, you know from, uh, from our, our time together on the stage a few weeks ago that, that, uh, that I touched on uh, four, uh, four themes that, that are part of everything that I do in terms of my conversations, my, my podcasting, my speeches, and that, and that is um, love, uh, inclusion, social justice, and then leadership. Um, and we touched on all four of those during that what ended up being a ninety-minute conversation. Um, you know, again, your, your words as you as you relay your experience, your story, uh, how you progress, and where you are now. Um, your, your story is the story of a person who, from from day one, not only learned something about the tools and the trade, but also was learning about what what being a leader is all about. Uh, and so, you've been in a lot of ways um, uh, without uh, the benefit of the term, uh, perhaps the founder of Park de Rocher mentored you, um, um, but you, uh, you then had someone uh, to give you a, a little bit of a wake-up call on the notice, uh, notion of what mentoring is, uh, which is not you know, an anecdotal involvement with someone, but it's a, it's a, it's a relationship that you build with individuals mm-hmm. to help them learn the things that they might not al- otherwise learn or learn them in the way that might be more beneficial to them individually and also to their ability to contribute to the success of a company. Um, so when I hear, and you talk about safety and quality, again, those seem to be front and center, uh, is an important part, maybe the central part of your, of your value proposition as you, as you talk to new customers and as you continue to, to get repeat business with customers, you've been doing with for, for decades. Um, what's the, uh, and again, I'm, I, from a, from a soft skills or quality standpoint, what, what quality, uh, do you, do you believe uh, are, are what promotes? The again, I, I consider safety and a safety program, and safety practices, uh, and the culture, along with quality, with the same kind of elements. I consider that all part of the of the process. Uh, the, the you know the hard skills aspects of running a successful contracting business. What what are the qualities that those reflect um, uh, at, from you as a leader when you talk about those with such such firmness and such directness and such energy? What what qualities are you projecting uh, are important to you uh, in talking about those two aspects of of running a successful contracting business?
2: That's a good question. I think what's important is that you see that now the focus is ESG, Environment, Social Governance. Mm -hmm. So what is that? Well, that can mean many different things. It's like safety and quality. When I first saw safety start growing growing and growing and growing, it was like, well, you had to tick off the boxes to qualify for an RFQ. The same thing with you what's your QMS, what's your quality management system? Well, you had to tick off the box. For me, it's got to be sincere. It's got to be for the right reasons. And it's got to be because you care about your people. And if you can instill that, then all of a sudden it becomes pretty easy. But if you're doing it just to tick off the box, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. I think the biggest thing, Dennis, is that up here we are. It's like, what is your aboriginal engagement? And there's all different things, you know, 51% ownership. But for us, because we care, because Doug and I care, we've put $170 million worth of paychecks in aboriginal pockets in the last 10 years. That's making a difference. We don't do it to tick off the box. We do it because we care. Yeah. And all of a sudden, people start recognizing that, and we maintain in Saskatchewan 30% Aboriginal. That's more than the percentage of the population in that province. And we've got people who've been on this for a long time, and they know we care. And I think that makes a difference. So it's like even when we're right now, we're working on ESG because there's large companies, what is your ESG? We want it to be our esng, and G, not what's politically correct yeah. or something that doesn't represent who we are. Yeah. So that's, today is the challenge we're working on right now. What does that mean? So we got Lauren and Brian's working on that, and obviously we'll sit down we'll go through that stuff. So to go back to the original question, it really it comes down to doing it for the right reasons, mm-hmm. and then it just becomes second nature. Like, it's funny – me, right down to my kids, everybody, when we travel Mexico or different places or I've been on job sites. Our eyes are so trained to say, like, oh, my God, can you see how those guys are working?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you yeah. see,
2: and even in your home life, I used to cut my grass in cut off blue jeans and bare feet.
1: Nice. Good.
2: No sunglasses.
1: Good yeah. No sunglasses.
2: So now it's like I'm wearing safety glasses. I'm wearing hard-toed boots. I'm wearing long pants. And same thing with someone's whippersnapping or, or doing something. It's changed our way of thinking. And I have to stress this, that what you do in preaching at work, you must do at home yeah. and not be a hypocrite. Yeah. And even with the COVID was a perfect challenge. What we did at work, we did at home. Because you never know who's looking. Right, And you also That's have right. to make sure, you have to make sure, that if you're saying something and believe, people believe you're sincere, then you can't lose that.
1: Yeah. I had uh, very high expectations for how this conversation was going to progress. To say that I was not the least bit disappointed is an understatement. You said the word care, and that was exactly the word I was looking for, which tells me just so much about how well grounded you are in your personal values and understanding, you know, why the thing that Dennis talks about all the time is important. That is the qualities of people. As the leader in the seat that you sit in, everybody, everybody in your company is watching what you do and listening to what you say. And they're all very fortunate. And I'm I'm being gracious because I feel it's appropriate. All of them are hearing and seeing a person who understands in their soul what leadership is all about. Your story is, is important. It will be educational and informative and inspiring to people. What you've done in your role and how you talk about your people and developing your company and the businesses that you're developing, I think, is marvelous education for folks. And I hope a lot of people have an opportunity to hear this conversation. I thank you so much for taking the time that you took. I mean, I know you genuinely are a very, very busy guy. And so I, I'm, I'm grateful that you took this time to be a, a guest on my podcast.
2: Well, thanks. You know, I, obviously I'm still passionate about what I do, and uh, I, I don't think you can fake when you care.
1: <laughs> there I might describe it in the words of my mentor, Steve Farber, who says, do what you love in the service of people who love what you do. Oh. I think that describes Jeff Grandberg. Well, oh, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Take care.
0: Thanks for joining us today for this episode of the Softest Steel podcast with your host, Dennis Duran. Dennis is the author of Softest Steel and a leading speaker and trainer for organizations across many industries and verticals. To learn more about the work Dennis is doing to activate soft skills in the workplace, contact him at DennisDuranSpeaking.com. Be sure to check out his book, Softest Steel on Amazon or wherever books are sold. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. And please remember to share this episode with your friends, colleagues, and anyone you feel would benefit from the conversation. We'll see you next time on the Softest Steel Podcast with Dennis Duran.
1: Produced by Audovita Studios, connect your voice to the world.